0: Welcome back to the Gate 15 interview. I'm Andy and your host of this monthly discussion with experts and valued guests from throughout our security community. This interview is one of our recurring monthly Gate 15 podcasts, along with our weekly security sprint, Dave Pounder's Nerd Out, which this month featured the two thirds awards, which were great, I thought. If you didn't check that out, go back and take a listen. And our monthly risk Roundtable, where Jen, Dave, and I pull up and have a good conversation, a little bit more deliberate deep dive than the weekly security sprint. Thanks for joining me today as I welcome another fantastic guest. Today's guest has served a long public sector career, retiring as the deputy assistant secretary. I'm sorry, deputy assistant director for cyber national security and cyber criminal investigations. And today he wears a number of hats, all of which we'll discuss soon. Thank you for joining me, Jeff Troy. It's really great to have you here.
1: Thanks, Andy. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank thanks for a, a great career of service, to be honest. And thanks for you doing today in aviation. We'll talk about that uh, in what's to fall. I think you bring. You know, a lot of really great background. And to be honest, as, as long as we've been in the same circles, I didn't appreciate your your FBI career. And what a fantastic career it's been. So I'll ask a couple of questions about that as we get going, if that's okay. And then we'll get into aviation and understanding the kind of business that you're doing. I think you bring some really great understanding that folks would love to hear from and learn about. So if it's okay, Jeff, uh, we'll start with your FBI career, right? So you served a great career. Thank you for that. You know, Sincerely, thanks for serving our country. I think the FBI... Uh, you know, I, I have certain grievances of the FBI from time to time, but I think they're really, especially today, you know, underappreciated, uh, often disrespected when there's a lot of really good public servants trying to protect our country, trying to defend our Constitution. Um, we might disagree about 702 and encryption, but, you know, other than that, we're in pretty good, pretty good shape. So to start, would you recommend the FBI to young people that are looking at their career options? Is still a great place to go? Is still a great place to serve?
1: Absolutely. Um, I would uh, highly recommend it to, you know, anyone who feels uh, that that is the uh, their call. I mean, I I think no matter what you do in your life, um, you have to be passionate about it. And um, certainly Uh, When you look at the FBI, it is an organization that hires lots of different kinds of people. Um, But one common trait amongst all of them is they're very passionate about what they do. So um, if you are really passionate about what you do, whether you're an accountant, as I was when I initially started, or or an attorney, or someone that's uh, into cybersecurity, um, there is uh, an incredible... um, uh, return, I guess, for the commitment that you make to the FBI, you know, the um, satisfaction that you get from from your job and uh, the contributions that you can make to the uh, safety and security and continued freedoms in our country is pretty pretty amazing.
0: I, I 100% agree with that. I think all public service sort of brings some of that unparalleled reward, right? There's nothing quite like serving your country I don't think. And I'll just share this. I, I've mentioned this on a couple of other podcasts in the past, but I have a former linguist when I was in Afghanistan. Rashid was just a great guy. He worked very close with our State Department rep and uh, put up with me and a lot of my BS more than he should have. And, uh, you know, long story short, he eventually got himself over to the United States and today is an FBI agent. And he's been involved in at least one terrorism case I'm aware of and doing great things now for his adopted home country. And I absolutely love that story. And I, I appreciate him. And I think it's just an awesome example of the many paths that can lead to serving in the FBI and other parts of our government. And, you know, while, while some people might look at it otherwise, the reality is all people who want to serve and contribute are welcome. And I think that's as true today as it ever has been. Absolutely. And thank you for your service as well. Oh, thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. It's uh, it, no, nothing compared to the career you had, trust me on that. But so let's talk a little bit. So how, how did how did you get started with the FBI? And then what you shared you know, as, an, as an accounting guy, right? How did you end up so involved in the world of cybersecurity? Yeah. So. Uh... As
1: I was graduating from college with uh, an accounting degree, I was trying to figure out a great way to use it in a way that I would, I would be passionate uh, about it. And uh, uniquely, I worked uh, at an alternative uh, prison facility for boys during college. So I had this interaction with the criminal side of the world uh, uh, in my job. And then I was academically you know, focused on the accounting stuff. Uh, that led me to think about the FBI as an option, and I went and met with an FBI agent. I think my senior year, and uh, he gave me a great piece of advice, which was: uh, if you like accounting, go get your CPA, uh, then come back and um, try and get into the FBI that way.
0: What was that boys' camp you were serving in? Was that was that a deliberate decision because you're in law enforcement, or was it you know something that you got a job offer and you found a job and you took it? It was
1: kind of a uh, uh, an opportunity uh, that came up as I was coming out of high school. I went to a uh, parochial high school, and the uh, Christian brothers that, that taught there also ran this facility, and so uh, they uh, had the option there for me to work there, and it worked out quite well, actually.
0: Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you, I think it's always so amazing how things we stumble into, things we never planned for take us down these paths that we didn't necessarily plan for, and, you know, for you to go through this you know, this path and, and then to find yourself in the FBI and then serve for many years. I just think I, I'm always sort of amazed at the way these things work out. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's a person of faith. I, I think of it one way, but I, I just think of it another way. But I, I always appreciate it. Anyway, didn't mean to interrupt you, so please continue yeah. the FBI story. No, no,
1: I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So thanks. <laughs> um So anyway, um it was interesting to learn that um, the biggest group of Job occupations hired by the FBI's attorneys. The second biggest group at the time I was hired was accountants, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of that when I had initially gone to meet with them. Uh, But it makes a lot of sense, right? So uh, whether you do in terrorism or a bank robbery, corruption, whatever it is, there's money tied to every single crime. And so um, at the time that I was applying, there was a lot of uh, bank. Uh, fraud going on, uh, big, big frauds, and there was a real need for more accountants in the Bureau, and they were really looking for certified public accountants. Obviously, that helps a lot um, in the investigations, so uh, the timing was right that uh, I had a skill that they were looking for, and it worked out well. Then um, I was initially uh, uh, assigned to a field office. I was put on the financial crime squad. I was doing that for uh, several years. And uh, one day, my supervisors walked out and said, "Hey, uh, you know how to turn on a computer? Uh, can you uh, <laughs> take a look at this?" And uh, it was actually a, a defense contractor who had uh, been fighting a cyber intrusion on their network. And this was 1990, oh, wow. before the word internet was invented. And yeah. uh, uh, I went and met with them and uh, learned about uh, Telnet and how they were connected and uh, Unfortunately, the only way they could stop the attacker at that time uh, was to pull the hard drive out of the computer. Uh, they really didn't know uh, how the person was getting in or what. Um, so we set up a, uh, uh, a system where when they saw the person come into the network, uh, they would beep me. And
0: uh,
1: <laughs> I, would, I would call them back and they would give me the network user address from which the person came onto their network. And I had on my desk at that time at work, uh, a very thin uh, uh, phone book of all the network user addresses on the planet. (laughs) So I could look it up, I could see where it was. Most times it was a university. Uh, I would send a teletype to the U S embassy in the country where that university was. And the FBI agent at that embassy would go over to that university, <laughs> get me the connected network user address, send it back by teletype. It was just so slow. It was, yeah. uh, it was crazy. Yeah. But I was able to build up where the attacker came from, which was Australia and worked with the Australian federal police. Uh, it was their first ever wiretap of a computer wow. and um, uh, caught the person that was doing it. And that's uh,
0: how I got got into it. That's that, that's awesome. That's a great story. Do you do you by any chance know Gary Warner? Uh, no. no. Uh, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to maybe connect you guys. Gary is a uh, he's got some similarly amazing old school stories, and he's done a lot of good work with the FBI. Still works closely with the, with the He's down at the University of Alabama Birmingham now, teaching young analysts how to become great uh, cyber sleuths. So just a fantastic guy. I uh, think on this podcast as well. So I'll share this interview with Gary, and maybe we'll do an introduction at some point. You guys might uh. I enjoy telling stories and getting to know each other. He's a great, a great resource. <laughs> but um, well, that, that that's awesome. That's a great way to get started. And you know, obviously, you continue down the path we talked about earlier, and coming to a point of you know a very high senior position at the FBI on their cyber crimes. And um, you know, just thank you for that. It's obviously a great background. I'd love to just sort of dive into your favorite stories about all of that. And maybe another time you'll be back and we can really talk sort of uh, Jeff's favorite FBI crime stories. But you know that that path that you went down as you got to that point in the road where you started looking at retirement, led you to some transitions and some really fantastic opportunities, I think, to contribute now in a in a different way. So if it's okay, we'll we'll look at sort of where you have gone to in the years. So you asked first at the FBI, you went to work at GE, and then got involved in a couple of, of the ISAC communities, uh, where today you're at Aviation ISAC, and we'll talk more about that. But can you talk about, about that transition, how you went from being a public sector partner to working in the private sector side? I've got a couple of colleagues right now at the FBI that are facing eminent transition i've got a few that are you know a few years out so i think about it and i know a lot of folks listening you know are, are, are on the public sector side and probably every now and again thinking about the the green pastures on the other side that they think they see what are your thoughts jeff on sort of that transition and how it went for you and maybe what went well or what was challenging for you so
1: um the transition uh was uh, very interesting. Um, probably uh, one of the things that I found the most interesting uh, going out uh, initially was I didn't have to wear a tie. That was really cool. So, <laughs> but um, uh, but you know, like the hours uh, and the ability to do work at home, like in the private sector, um, it seemed more of like a, a regular job as where in the FBI, it literally was like my life, right? So um, there were many times uh, something would happen, uh, for example, a kidnapping, Like right? And I would call home to my wife and be like, I- I'm not sure when I'm going to be home. Yeah. You know, 9-11 hit, you know, I wasn't home for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh I, I felt it was, it was uh, uh, an easy adoption in terms of the work hours, right? Uh, that, that was pretty easy to move toward. Um, but what I was um, really impressed with when I went outside was the absolute incredible level of talent in the cybersecurity field, uh, particularly at, at General Electric. But I was connected with many of the US defense contractors and was just totally, totally impressed with uh, the folks that they had there. Um, not just in terms of how well they knew computers uh, and how well they were able to uh, uh, investigate uh, intrusion investigations, uh, but their creativity in trying to look forward and solve the problem. And, and I think one of the greatest examples is the, the the team at Lockheed Martin that came up with the kill chain, wow. um, that, that whole... Um, Theory which morphed into the MITRE ATT&CK framework uh, and has really become, uh, I think, the framework uh, from which, you know, really all of the conversations happen in cybersecurity now, regardless of what sector you're in. Uh, so um, that was a, a really great thing to see. Uh, another great thing to see on the private sector side was the unbelievable wealth of intelligence information that they had. Uh, much of which was collected in unclassified ways and uh, which you know takes the handcuffs off you in terms of being right. able to share that information and and start to help others stop attacks. Um, so there was uh, uh, some really great um, eye-opening experiences in in moving from the public sector to the private sector
0: yeah, I and mean, I, I agree with the incredible talent you know I, I get to just you know be a part of different communities, talk with some amazing people and always humble that i'm even in the same conversation as them you know I'm, I'm really good at some things that i do there's a whole lot of things that i don't do and, and i've got colleagues and friends who just do some unbelievable work on, on the cyber crime you know side of the house and it's just it's just fantastic the work they do what they're able to pull and like you said once you get out of the classified space and get out of government quarters it's very different what you can do and how you can action you know threat intelligence so yeah i definitely appreciate that i'll, I'll tell another silly story and i'll we'll come back to your transition a little bit here but um I, you know talking about that tradition with, with no ties when i was still working in support of dhs i remember a really great leader there i won't say his name but he's still with dhs today and uh he came over to me. he's always sharp dressed really good looking guy and he came over to me one day and my, my sleeves were cuffed and i was sitting in my cubicle and said andy don't you know don't dress the job you have dress the job you want he goes i mean i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna be a senior executive and i was like i know you are you're a great guy and you look the part I said, I want to get the hell out of here. And, and you know, today, today, today I work from home and I have the last 10 years. And I, I think I was dressing for the path I was going down, and he was dressing for his. But but it's true. You know, it, it's nice to be on the prospector side. And certainly with COVID, uh, there's even maybe more of a uh, slight uh deformalization of how some of us are dressed on a given day. But um but that, yeah. that's the time. But you know, as, as you left and as you came to work on the project side, you went through GE, you you worked with the National Defense ISAC, but you're sitting today at aviation ISAC. You talk a little about That transition, how you got there, and and sort of the type of work you're doing?
1: Yeah. So, uh, when I got out, you know, GE being a defense contractor as well as a a commercial um, aviation player, um, I was uh, very involved in um, GE's uh, work with the government in um, sharing cybersecurity information and uh, essentially. Working with a very small community of defense contractors and the government in trying to, uh, you know, crowdsource our uh, information and skill sets in order to be able to, um, you know, fight these attacks. So uh, it was a uh, a great experience. Uh, we had a small community which morphed into what's now known as the National Defense ISAC, and uh, probably about five years after I was in the Aviation ISAC. Um, got wind of the fact that uh, some companies wanted to put together an an Aviation ISAC as well. So uh, we were uh, part of the initial founding members that put together the Aviation ISAC. I was on the sidelines helping that group get stood up particularly in setting up their first information sharing platform and just kind of understanding the rhythm of of how this uh, private sector information exchange works then a couple of years after they got off the ground, uh, the executive director of the aviation ISAC uh, was hired away to uh, open up another ISAC.
0: And, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of her. She's a great leader. But, but <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, Faye, she's she's awesome. Uh, she's now over at the, the Auto ISAC. So, um, so she had uh, uh, recommended my name, and uh, I was. Uh, brought on board to be the executive director and did that uh, concurrently while working at GE for about five years and then uh, left GE and now just full-time over at the Aviation ISAC.
0: That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I mean, you you followed a great leader and I didn't actually know that you were part of that original stand-up effort. I mean, you get some companies like GE and other national defense contractors. There's so much presence across so many sectors. They don't always realize you know, where people work. I'm glad you got to be a part of that. It's great that you guys come over and, and take over the leadership role there. So let's talk a little bit about you know, what you're doing there, right? Information sharing, uh, threats, and things of that nature. Let, let's start with information sharing. So, you know, there's a lot that you've learned, I think, over the years from both the public side and in what you do today. As you know, you know, our team and Gates team were very active in the ISAC, ISAC community, and we work hard to help foster mature information sharing communities, both formal, you know, communities like ISACs and, and also informal ones, just networks of good guys trying to do good things to, to beat the bad guys, right? Right. Um, what do you see as the key success factors to making an information sharing community work? Because it's not as easy as people think it is. So what, what's helped aviation be successful?
1: Uh, the most important thing, without a doubt, that's helped us be successful is um, we have stayed true to our core values. Um, so we put together a, uh, a set of core values um, that really uh, drive the way our community engages with each other, and that has been, uh, without a doubt, uh, the key to our success. Um, our core values uh, are that, number one, we're a trusted community. Um, the second is we're, we're focused on knowledge development. Uh, the third is we're a nonprofit, so stewardship is really important. That's our third core value. And then the fourth core value is, is that even as a trusted, tight community that's that's doing Um, information sharing, we have to have partnerships outside of our core group. And so uh, those four core values along with the the core value of information sharing are uh, really the foundation. Uh, When people feel comfortable in a trusted community, uh, they're willing to tell you about something bad that just happened at their company. Um, And we don't need to just know bad, right? I mean, what we need indicators of compromise. We need to understand how the root cause of the problem, how they got in. And uh, a lot of times people don't want to tell you, uh, you know what, we, we messed up. We did this thing. We didn't uh, structure our network security architecture in the proper way, or somebody just made an error, right? Whatever those, those reasons are. Uh, But when you get uh, that level of trust and that level of um, uh, comfort with the community, that they know each other well enough to trust that you're not going to share this information outside of the way that it's been agreed upon, then, then you you end up having success. And, and success breeds success. So people are like, yeah, hey, I like this group. You can come in. And we have not grown. So some ISACs have thousands and thousands of members. Um, we have a very small Membership, uh, and we are not out trying to grow, you know, by a hundred or two hundred percent a year. Um, we have um, very targeted conversations. We have a review process within our ISAC as would would the community feel comfortable with this company coming in and 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 you know sharing information with them, and we make sure that uh, uh, that our growth is is strategic and and will not uh, break the model of trusted
0: community. I really like that. I really like the core you know values. Thank you for sharing those, and uh, I think that's a good quote we'll we'll, we'll highlight in this. But I me mean, yeah, right? I mean trust, partnership, uh, responsibility you know responsibly handling what you're entrusted with. I mean th- those are key tenants to, to an organization. Like It's really probably any um, you know nonprofit, but but especially in the in the world we live in, information sharing. I really like that differentiator because right I mean a lot of ISACs right I me mean, to. To do good work, you've got to have resources and resources come from, you know, events and member dues and that nature. So there is a big push to to bring in new members because that brings in more revenue. You can do more really good work, right? I mean, there, there's a reason right. why. It's not it's not just for the fun of having more money, but um, I like the approach you're taking of trying to keep it, you know, a trusted community, you know, known and, and, and valued by its members. And that's a, it's, a, it's a really nice way to do things. I'm glad, I'm glad you to have a chance to hear more about that another time, maybe. But let me ask you, I, I don't think I know the answer to this question, Jeff. Let me ask you, are you explicitly focused on cybersecurity or, you, know, you mentioned mentioned 9.11 earlier, do, does the ISAC look at you know, potential physical threats and things of that nature as well?
1: Uh, it's a great question. Uh, we are focused on cybersecurity. However, there's more and more overlap in the yeah. physical and cybersecurity worlds. Uh, in fact, I don't know anybody that can do physical security now without relying on technology to help you do it. Right from from swipe cards to uh, uh, camera setups I mean, to you know, build automations,
0: yeah, everything. I mean, it's yeah. all that.
1: And the insider threat is another common ground area for the, both the physical and the cyber folks. Um, so because of that, um, I think there's a lot more melding of the two spaces. Uh, but certainly, our focus is is more on the cyber side of it.
0: Yeah, that that makes sense. We you know we after wanna cry. Um, my team looked around and we were like, "What do what do we call you know an attack that starts in one domain and has this sort of crossover effect, right? Where can it can be a you know, cyber to physical or physical to cyber, and we really didn't know you know what to do with that." And and we we ended up using the term blended threats. We talk about blended threats now for I think six years or so. Turns out there's a an older use for that term as well, but we I, we ignored that and just moved forward anyway. But I think that's right. I mean everything is blended today, right? You can really call it convergence, blended threats. Like it, it's very hard to do anything without something being connected to the internet, right? It's just yeah. the reality that we live in. So I, I appreciate that You know, those, those domains are increasingly intertwined and that's the future we're going to be living in where you know, we're going to have AI and augmentation and, and just all sorts of interesting challenges to work with. So I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing about the information sharing side. Another key aspect of an ISAC is, is understanding the threat environment and working with your members on threats and risks. You know, we, we, we say, if you our tagline, you know, understand the threats assess the risk and take action, right? Understand your environment and then do the things you need to do to draw down that risk. But let's talk a little bit about understanding threats. You've seen threats, crime, bad guys, you've seen it all from the public and private sides of things. Can you help me and those listening understand the difference between what we may be seeing right now in any given moment versus the broader threat and concerns and what makes a threat something that we should really be seriously thinking about? Can you help us understand sort of the perspective that you look at these things?
1: Yeah, and this is really where my FBI training uh, has helped me tremendously out here on the, in the private sector. Uh, so this was a real big problem um, when you look at uh, trying to understand how you're going to use your limited resources to address uh, the most significant threats. Yeah. And uh, in in my career uh, in the FBI, Uh, one of the things that would happen annually, uh, no matter where I was at, uh, was you would do uh, what essentially was a a risk survey. And you would try and understand where the the risk is in uh, your field office or the division that, that you're working in. And early on in my career, you could see that folks essentially would look at like the caseload, and they would say, well, this is kind of what we have. You know, this is this is what we're, we're worried about. And the conversation really changed. And after 9-11, it significantly changed um, to where um, you're not worried um, just about um, what is going on, but you're worried about what could go on. You know, um, so you could live in a town that's never had a bank robbery, right? Uh, but if you're seeing a trend where a bank robbery gang is moving down the coast and your area is the, the next place they most likely will come, um, then your concern over a bank robbery should be really high as opposed to, hey, we've never seen one, so we don't have to ever worry about it, right? Right. Right so you so you're looking at information that's outside of just your typical focus area because it's a trend that could be could be moving into your space. And I think in the cyber world, you know, we can take uh, um, uh, thoughts of uh, hacktivism here as a, uh, a perfect example. Uh, so years ago, uh, when we will look at the threats, we will look at nation state threats, we look at uh, financially motivated threat actors or fraud actor type things, and we will look at hacktivists. And you would see hacktivists as um, Probably the lowest concern with respect to a threat because they uh, essentially were doing things to uh, highlight their cause. So they might do, you know, a web fa- a website defacement, for example. That might might be something you would you would see by a hacktivist. Uh, but today, um, the term hacktivist has significantly changed, and the the focus on it has changed because we're seeing. Um, activists who are taking sides in geopolitical conflicts, right? So you have some activist groups that are out there saying we're attacking you because we think Russia is doing the right thing in the the war with Ukraine. So that's, you know, um, and those groups uh, have access to more sophisticated cyber attack techniques uh, that could have a a disruption um, on any sector's uh, ability to operate. And the world has changed also in terms of uh, the way ransomware works, right? So you just have a gang that will go out and do it. Now there are um, specialists who can get you access into a company, you know, initial access brokers. And then you have someone else who has a a ransomware family that you can rent access to use that. Uh, You have mules out there willing to you know, do the money collections and, and other things along those lines. So uh, it's become very sophisticated. And for uh, someone who has got some financial means to be able to buy uh, from the hacker supermarket, some of these uh, different things, uh, you can all of a sudden have a lot more impact than you may have had had years ago. So so now when you look at the threat picture, you know, you have to take a look at this this new market, this new world that has been created. Um, you have to watch uh, vulnerabilities much more closely today than you've uh, had to watch in the past because uh, the ability to convert um, a vulnerability into an exploitable vulnerability where someone has uh, already started to go after that vulnerability as the initial attack vector uh, on a network, um, that, that, has, uh, that time just continues to shrink and shrink and shrink. And so so now, you know, uh, you're you're looking at uh, most significant vulnerabilities being closed in 24 to 48 hours where maybe, you know, as a a network uh, administrator, you might have had a week or a month to be able to close something like that up. You you don't have the luxury of those time frames anymore. You've you've really got to address that. So um, those are all things that have to go into your threat equation. You know, Um, who is it? what's their motivation, what's their capability, what's their likelihood, and then these trends. Uh, How are these trends impacting how um, you may have to uh, mix up your priorities, you know, rearrange your priorities uh, in terms of what is the most important thing you need to do right now in order to address the biggest risk that you have facing.
0: Man, I love all of that. You packed so much into that, Jeff. There's so much to to dig into. We can't dig into all of it, but I'll, I'll just, Kind of thinking about a couple of things. One, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Looking at ransomware today, just like organized retail crime on the physical side, it's not just you know somebody walking into the store and, and ripping things off. Sometimes it is, and sometimes somebody that you know paid a little bit of money and it's becoming increasingly inexpensive and got a hold of some ransomware and, and you know and and they're they're committing a crime. But oftentimes it's a much more complex environment with specialists like you talked about. There's a hierarchy. There's there's a very deliberate system. It, it's a challenge, and that's why we're seeing more resources from our government partners putting behind. Uh, you know going after these things it's very interesting But you talk about reducing risk and it is a challenge right all all organizations are resource tight right nobody's got a lot of money for security you can only do so many things you identify all those risks you can't you can't do everything you want to do and make risk zero right so we do a lot of exercises and i tell people you know it's always ransomware and active shooter those are the two things that everybody wants to do the most of because those are the most in-your-face and consequential threats organizations see, although there's other significant threats, but there's compromise and a host of others, swatting as we're seeing taking place all over the country right now. But when you do those exercises, you know I think what we try and encourage people to think about is let's get as much as we can out of it, right? Let's not just so explicitly look at one dimension, but what else can we gain to more broadly help reduce our risk and increase our preparedness and resilience while we focus on ransomware or active shooter or BEC or whatever it might be? Like you really want to get the most bang for your buck. And, and that's, I think, saying that, you know, as as an exercise specialist, as our team, as a lot of exercise specialists, that, that's something we really want to try and emphasize folks to do, right? Get the most eye you can out of those one, two, three, four exercises you get to do in a given year. So you can really increase your preparedness and resilience. Yep. Well said. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Thanks. And again, there's there's a lot in what you said. I, I would, I'm i going to listen to this podcast. You should listen to these a couple of times to be honest, try and soak in. Uh, the full conversation, and I'd encourage folks to, to go back and at least listen to the segment that you shared. Because I think you really packed a lot in there that's that's really useful to think about and consider. And you know, on your point on patching, I shared a story a number of times. I think it's a good one. So I was working with an organization, with a group of organizations. I'm, I won't say who or what type, but there was a a good portion of the year where they, at the time, this was now, you know, probably eight, seven, eight years ago, where they just wouldn't patch because the potential consequence of that going badly was just much more of an impact than the potential risk of their exposure over the years, that calculation has changed, right? They they can't stay unpatched in, in critical vulnerabilities you know, for a long period of time. I think for all organizations, that's something you've got to constantly revisit, right? What's your patching process? What's your cycle? How do you address you know out of band updates, your, your critical vulnerabilities, ASTISA, you know, add to the known exploited vulnerabilities catalog, you know, at least on a weekly basis, it seems, you know, t- today, Avanti having a significant issue, like how do you go in and take care of these things to reduce risk before, as you said, you know, that flash to bank time, that exploit comes along and now you're compromised. I and mean, we've seen that happen so many times the last few years, just, uh, man, you, you really covered a lot of ground there, Jeff, before we get into the, the sort of three questions and more fun, goofy part of the podcast, I'll give you the open floor later, but anything else on ISACs on information sharing on threats, anything else like to focus and get people to think about as you're thinking about their ISAC community, their given private sector organization.
1: Yeah. Um, just kind of, uh, Pulling the thread a little bit more on what you were just talking about. It really goes back to, um, what can I do, you know, ahead of time, right. In order to prevent this problem. And then once you've done that, what can I do ahead of time now to prevent that problem? Like continue asking that question. Yeah. And I think what we're really starting to see uh, right now is that security has to be considered, um, in the initial development of products and not as a afterthought, not as a bolt on. Um, so when you're putting a solution together, and I, I can I think of like, there's lots of solutions that are based on uh, an underlying technology, right? And I'm just gonna use Java as an example, because uh, that, that that's just one I'm, I'm very familiar with, where you know you use a certain version of Java when you create uh, an application of some sort, and then uh, the, the your application continues to live, uh, but Java um, continues to come up with uh, iterations afterwards of it, right? And so um, in an example like that, you know you have a uh, an integrated technology built in a larger application. Uh, how are you when you are initially putting together this application going to be ready for the fact that there will be an upgrade to a base technology that's built into your technology that uses that as a as a component yeah. right and and that that whole concept of all the different components that come in right you you've got to you know not allow your developers to just say, Well, we're just going to sit on that one thing and that will, will be it. You know, they need to come up with a way to say, Well, that will never touch the internet, or this is how we're going to protect that from being a vulnerability that we'll be exposed to. Or you've, you've got to understand that the life cycle of a technology is going to require a little bit more money. It's like, you know what, this thing that we thought's going to last for, um, you know, three, five years it actually is only safe for about 18 months. Yeah. And then we're gonna to have to pay people to upgrade that in order to make sure that, that the continued versions and the continued uses of this application are secure. And that mindset, uh, we're just starting to see, I think a lot more of that uh, mindset come to, uh, to bear. And I think the market is going to drive that uh, people are selling uh, not just an application but um, a future secured application you know that you, you'll you be you kind of be buying uh, a product with the assurance that you know when I'm using this 18 months from now it's as secure as the day i bought
0: it. yeah I mean you know it, it can sometimes be a barrier to innovation right when you have, to, you have to take that responsibility on right because you've got some you know great young gal great young guy comes up with a great idea they put something together it's exciting it's useful it works it's sort of And and they're necessarily thinking about security when they're building that, right? And they know the resources to bake security in at first. And it's a challenge because you want that innovation, you want that excitement, you want that quick rollout capability. But as we've seen time and again, like security has to be part of that. And I think as as you were starting your last last portion there, I think somewhere angels were singing and and Rob Joyce and Jen Easterly somewhere probably felt a a, a glow over them because that's what we're talking about, right? The... Baking security in from the beginning, your software bill of materials, right? Doing things right, understanding what's in your environment from the beginning, and just being prepared to keep ensuring in, in, security throughout the life cycle. I mean, that's it's so important. It's a challenge. I mean, you know, I I love the innovation, but but it's got to be responsible innovation because, you know, y- your oversight today can lead to absolutely catastrophic impacts in that supply chain and downstream. So, you've got to think of those things. Great, great point, Jeff. Uh, uh, awesome. So, let's. Let's pivot to three questions and we'll come back and give you the open floor for any final thoughts or anything you want to share. So I appreciate all the serious you know, conversation we've had. I appreciate your perspective. I think we could probably we could probably do a, a podcast a month and, and just start to scratch the surface of your perspective and knowledge and understanding. I really appreciate you sharing all that today. But this is a part of the show. We move from the serious stuff and we get to know you a little bit more at the personal level, right? Who is Jeff Torres? I'm going to ask you three questions and you're tasked to try to just answer the first thing that comes to mind, whatever that is. You know, however personally embarrassing it might be, it's okay. You know, we, we have Scott Algier on this podcast. He's 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 made it through okay. So sometimes I ask questions, sometimes I ask about something and ask if you love it, hate it, or don't care. So we'll just do a little bit of both and and we'll start with uh with with your your home country, right? So you have some connections to the ocean state, Rhode Island. A couple of years ago, as a Virginian, I I I was I was not taught about this in in grade school, but I came to discover Roger Williams, who founded. Rhode Island, and he's an underappreciated and pretty amazing part of our American story. I really, I, I've got a great book recognition if anybody wants it, but fantastic character. Any favorite thoughts or connections for you with, with Rhode Island?
1: Uh, my favorite thoughts and connections were uh, absolutely my my college years. Um, I lived up near uh, Providence, I lived in a town called Pawtucket uh, most of my uh, growing up. Uh, but after high school, I moved down into the Narragansett and University of Rhode Island area. Um, so I was never more than about eight miles from the ocean during that whole time. Uh, so uh, just really fond memories of uh, lots of things uh, down by the ocean. It's just uh, an amazing place to be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You get two close to home spots for me there. One, we, we love the ocean. We love the beach and my family. And I've got a senior in college and I just sent my youngest to start his freshman year uh, down in florida so uh we're, my wife and i are awkwardly trying to manage being empty nesters and we're we're walking around very confused right now still trying to put our heads together so <laughs> <Another feeling. laughs> so you know talking about the ocean and the beach we're, we're, we're finishing up the, the the days of summer here as we record this in uh, the end of august we're looking forward to fall i mean i get excited because it's football season and that's that's one of my favorite things anything that you're personally looking forward to to continue here through the rest of 2023 uh, probably the biggest thing is our summit.
1: So um, actually, that's the second biggest thing. My daughter's getting married in October. That's the biggest that, thing. That,
0: yeah, that better be bigger. That better be bigger.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, otherwise, our, our summit is always a, a wonderful event. Uh, a big part of trusted community is actually bringing people together physically to spend time together. Um, you can get an awful lot done in meetings during the day, but you get an awful lot done you know, over a beer at night as well. Um, so really uh, fun for that. Um, my, my family, my kids are all over the United States. And so, uh, for, for my daughter's wedding, it's obviously, we're really excited to, uh, get everybody together and, uh, just, you know, be together for a really good fun event.
0: Oh yeah. Well, congratulations. That's, that's super exciting. Uh, the, the wedding, I, I don't want to think about that in my family for a little bit longer, if I can avoid it, but um, your, your summit, Jeff, is that, is that a closed event just for members or are others allowed to participate in that or do you have sponsors or what does that look like? Yeah, so we
1: we open it up to uh, people who have uh, a stakeholder relationship with aviation. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, we have about three hundred and thirty people registered right now, and uh, we're having it over in uh, Dublin, Ireland. Uh, Yep, we have uh, sponsors. Pardon me, and we also have uh, uh, speakers. We do, you know, a call for papers, which uh, I think almost all ISACs do at this point, and uh, we have this year uh, probably the largest response to that. I think there were maybe 20 to 25 uh, papers that were submitted that we didn't get to bring on stage this year just because uh, we had such great um, content. So it's been uh, been really excited to, to see that type of development uh, and growth in the community.
0: That, that's super exciting. We'll share the link to the summit so folks can just see what you guys are up to and I wish you well in Ireland. I've got some family members who really enjoy that part of the world and. Uh, I think uh, some of my 15 team teammates are going to be asking me, why aren't we uh, more involved in that? So don't ask team, don't ask, but but, I, <laughs> but that's, uh, that's great. Good luck to you on both the, the wedding and the summit. So all right, last one, last one. We'll actually skip the love it, hate it, don't care portion. I'm gonna ask this last question. If you were assigned the mission to establish a colony on one of these places, which one you, would you pick and why? So colony on the moon, colony on Mars, Colony somewhere deep in the dark of the ocean. Where would you go, Jeff?
1: Oh, wow, um, deep and dark of the ocean. Um, the Colony on Moon and and the Mars. The biggest thing after uh, watching uh, uh, the Martian movie and kind of watching what's going on. It's just the length of time it takes to get there and back. Uh, yeah. it's just insane. Uh, at least if you're bottom of the ocean, uh, you you got a decent chance of getting back. Also. Uh, uh, when it comes to undiscovered worlds and lots of things to learn, there's probably more at the bottom of the ocean than there is on on Mars or the moon, right? There's just, I mean, we know there's life down there and a lot of really cool things.
0: Same life too, like things we don't even understand. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, definitely be up for that. And, you know, a lobster or two wouldn't hurt, so.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree. I think the ocean is absolutely incredible. There's just so much mystery down there. And, and so much, probably, to learn and understand about our own environment and you know the world around us by really understanding the ocean. You know, moon rocks are cool, but I think there's a lot more to be gleaned out of understanding our our our, uh, our depths in our ocean. So, great answer. Thank you for tolerating my silly questions. Get to to know a bit more about All you, nice. and rough So, thanks for playing three questions with me. Um, so, open floor, Jeff. Before we wrap up, anything else you want to throw out there, share about the ISAC, about yourself, good tips for you know security professionals, anything you'd like to share? Um, I, I probably just wanna uh, focus particularly on
1: like younger people that, that are listening to this, that uh, there is uh, an incredible amount to learn in this space. And you know if you have any uh, curiosities, uh, just follow them. There's so many ways to get involved. Uh, we're involved in uh, doing some capture the flag type events and things like that. But there's uh, many communities in cities There's, uh, you know, small B-sides, communities and other uh, types of groups where uh, you can find your peeps, you can find your people, uh, folks that are really uh, into um, cybersecurity, uh, into uh, hacking things, ripping them apart, trying to find shortcuts, better ways, uh, and challenging us uh, who are in industry uh, to make sure that we are building secure and, and operating secure and safe. So um, I would just in, encourage people uh, to make sure that they are um, networking, you know, going out there and finding those folks around them. And we are just an evolution of that process. And we're just another way for people to, to network and, and get to learn and, and help each other out. And uh, thank everybody who's, who's out there trying to make uh, all of our digital infrastructure more secure.
0: Yeah, you know, that that that's a great note to end it on. There's a lot of superheroes out there, and I think you know on, on the community, I think you know the cybersecurity community is probably one of the most uh, innovative and inclusive communities to be a part of. Where I think really you know everybody's welcome. Just come, learn, break things, ask questions, and and get smarter and help. And I, I think I think it's awesome. So a great place to end things, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking time out to join me today to share. Thank you again for your career at the FBI and all that you're doing today. I. I'm in planes from time to time. I appreciate knowing that you and your colleagues are out there helping to keep them safe. So really, thank you for all that you've done. You're welcome back. We'd love to have you back on. There's a lot more we can dive into, but for today, I think that's the show. We'll we'll stop there. So thank you for being a part of today's podcast. Thank you for everybody that's listening, for taking time out and being part of our Gay 15 community. Please subscribe to our podcast channel wherever you listen and enjoy our other Gay 15 podcasts, our monthlies, our weekly security sprint. They're all available in the same channel that you're hearing this interview. Subscribe, listen and share ideas and feedback on social media. We'll be up on Thread soon. Uh, LinkedIn. You can email us, whatever works for you. Thanks again for listening, Jeff. Thank you again. Until next time, have fun, live free, and try to be at least somewhat reasonably safe. Thanks so much.